and have a seat, church. Welcome to NBC. If you're joining us online, we welcome you as well. Uh, Want to go ahead and get our Bibles warmed up and open to Revelation chapter 6. The journey restarts and continues today. Uh, wanted to just say as you're getting your Bibles and Bible apps open, uh, a couple of things just, just kind of in the aftermath of the last, last Sunday's announcement. I wanted to express two things. One is uh, I wanted to say thank you to those of you who have um, expressed support to M&I uh, in our family uh, as we make the transition. You guys, I didn't expect anything different, but, but it is awesome uh, to watch the graciousness of, of our church in action. So I just wanted to say thank you for that. And then secondly, there's some questions that, you know, people obviously have that are, that are obvious. And I'll, I'll just kind of, kind of brush across the top of them right now because some of the answers to these are still kind of in the future probably. But um, one, one, the big question is, okay, well, what now? And I wanted to just say a couple of things. One is, um, as far as who's going to be the senior pastor of the church, it's, it's gonna, you're stuck with me for a while longer. Uh, so we're going to have uh, April 30th will be my last Sunday in the pulpit, as we mentioned, but, but I'll still be here and around and, and uh, serving in a board capacity and kind of helping with the transition uh, from that point on. And the board will make the final decision in, in conjunction with the NBC staff team and with some feedback from the church. But um, uh, I have full confidence that, that, whatever that whatever timing that looks like, I think we've kind of set a rough target date of somewhere around June 30th. Uh, we'd love to have somebody identified, if not sooner. Uh, so we'll see how it's going. And as far as uh, what it's going to look like between there, there'll be some, you know, just a lot of conversations and talking and using our network and stuff and, and entertaining the interest of qualified people. And so I'd ask you to, to pray for that. Um, God has always had his hand on this church. I have no reason to think he's going to stop for some reason and uh, that he would continue to guide uh, that, that the evil one would be kept far at bay from the church and that the church would... Uh, continue to thrive and to prosper. Uh, I've also had some questions about the Grand. Uh, for somehow, uh, there's a rumor developed that the Grand is closing because I, we're leaving, and that is just a lie. So if you hear that, feel free to uh, put that to death. It never should have come to life. Uh, the Grand is blowing and going. I mean, like, really going. Like, I'll tell you how going. Okay, we had an ice skating rink on this stage like two or three days ago with polar bears on ice skates, all right? Um, you don't get that in the average church, all right? <laughs> I'm pretty sure that didn't happen at St. Mary's this week or, or someplace like that. Uh, we, we, we have an approach of radical hospitality uh, to our community, and so we host events here all the time. The, the Grand is booked solid uh, into 2024, all right? So things are great. Uh, so just thought I'd get that out there in case uh, any of you have those questions in mind. Uh, stay tuned. We're not going to obsess about this every week. I'm not going to do like some big talk. We got other things to do, man. Easter's coming. We got baptism Sunday coming. We've got great ministry to do. So we want to be about that, but we want you to feel informed. So there's a dance that we'll do and just try to keep you informed, but at the same time, not obsess about it at the same time, okay? Um, if you have any questions, feel free to find me, uh, one of the NBC board members, and we'd be happy to talk with you, or staff person. They'll know too. They'll be in the loop, all right? Okay, onward and upward we go. Revelation, piece of cake. A um, couple of things we're working with here as we, we dive back in, because we've had a week off. Uh, were you guys blessed by Rudy Hagen last week? Was he good or what? I told him at lunch, I go, Rudy, you got better. Uh, it's been five years since he's been on this stage. He, he was so good, and uh, just encouraging us to look at the fundamentals of faith, and he talked about worship, and he talked about wonder and evangelism. And I'm going to add another, this is, this is a far less popular essential, all right, you ready for it? 
Ready? Here we go. Suffering. Woo! Yeah, there you go. That's the spirit. Um, suffering. Consider today's sermon part one of a two-parter, which is part of a ten-parter, that really at its core is God is great and in full control of everything that's going on, but it's going to be hard between now and the time that the Lord returns again. And so revelation is a call for the endurance of the saints. Okay? Uh, we get into the, what's called the weird stuff is what I, way I've referred to it, the stuff that really gets weird. Uh, two weeks ago we did Revelation 4 and 5 where you have the throne room scenes that really just exalt God into this huge, high, breathtaking glory that then everybody's just bowing down and worshiping and, and everybody's like, oh man, our minds are blown and we're, John is seeing this, these uh, uh, seven scrolls brought out and, and wants to see the scroll of God open so that the will of God can be done in the world, but nobody seems to be worthy to open it. And then everybody says, oh, yeah, there is. There's only one, though, and it's him, the lamb. And so today he opens it. It's terrifying. <laughs> you kind of hope that Okay, the first one will be like peace and then wealth and then joy and all that. And it's not. They're scary. That's why I'm saying you have to, you have to read Revelation as a whole. Uh, you can't just look at it in one little chunk or just one little uh, thing. And particularly in this particular section, what you're going to see is uh, some turning of the jewel, if you will. That's a the idea that like if you picked up a diamond and you wanted to see it, you would turn it around like that and you'd catch the different cuts and angles as the light hit it. That's what John's going to do with this next section. He's going to pick up the same thing and he's going to repeat it. And then he's going to repeat it again with different imagery. Okay, But the same story is being told. Uh, think about it this way. And I'm, I'm going to go ahead and say... Uh, I think that Revelation 6 to 19, which some people talk about it as the tribulation, if you will, um, or that section of Scripture. Some people think there's a great tribulation where uh, there's a very intense period of time where suffering exists on, on the earth here, uh, but that God's people are more or less rescued from that period of time. Uh, I, I, I'm not a futurist, as I told you in the first one. I'm more of what's called a partial preterist. So I tend to look at that and say, no, the tribulation is everything starting with the first coming of Christ to the second coming of Christ. And so what's being described here is kind of a general experience of all people, all Christians, as they go about in a world where uh, the empires of the world are raging against them. And so you're going to get part, two parts. One is today and the kind of the horsemen of the apocalypse, the 144,000, all that. And then next week you get Armageddon and the biography of Satan. And it, what it does is it, it, when you pair them together, you start seeing, okay, a lot of the mess that we see in this world, the, the pain, the suffering, the tragedies, things like that, are, are in part, not exclusively, but in part, the result of a battle that is going on between good and evil in the world now. And part of what we experience is God's effort to redeem the world that we live in now and later. All right? So I'm going to do the best I can. All right? And I hope that uh, even though I know you all lost an hour of sleep, uh, that uh, you will bear with me here. All right? So when you open up Revelation 6, especially 6 to 11, but really 6 to 19, maybe even 20, 
Uh, picture it this way. Somebody comes to you and says, hey, uh, I want you to film a San Diego Aztecs football game. And I'm going to give you five cameras. All right? So that, this is the game we're playing. I come to you or the Aztecs come to you. And they say, hey, listen, we need you to film this game. And so we're going to give you two iPhones and two uh, high-res cameras and one blimp. Okay? And we want you to film it. So you take one, you go to like the 50-yard line, maybe 10 rows up, and, and you put a camera there, right? And that's kind of your, those are your uh, expensive seats when you're at the game. And from there, you can kind of see, uh, you know, the right to left and the left to right and those kind of things, right? And then you take another one and you put it in, say, the, the north end zone. You put it there, maybe, oh, halfway up or something like that. And that gets you the north and south, but really from behind one team, and then you can see the defense of the other team, right? And then you take another one, you put it in the other end zone. So now you're seeing the other team from the back side and then the front side. And then maybe you have one of those like little flying drone thingies they've got over the football fields now. And that one's kind of humming about 20, 30 feet over and kind of moving up and down the field. And then you got the, you, you, you decide, hey, I'm going to just fly the blimp because I've always wanted to do that. I'm going to jump in the Goodyear blimp and I'm going to fly over the game from way up there and I'm going to film that big perspective. You get the crowd, you get all this different stuff kind of going on, all right? So what you're going to do then is you're going to get, somebody will be switching the cameras to show the different angles whenever it's prudent, right? So if it's on the goal line, you're going to get the one, the end zone camera that's right there or the thing flying right over the end zone or something like that, okay? John kind of does that with the issue of the worldly events that go on during this time that's kind of known as the tribulation. And uh, part of the reason that I believe what I do about this kind of era is if you go to in Matthew 24, I think it's Luke 21, Mark, Mark 13, same thing, uh, Jesus teaches what's called the Olivet Discourse. And in that discourse, he says a bunch of things that sound eerily like Revelation. And he talks about the sun and the moon doing weird things and the stars doing weird things and um, blood and other things. And when he's done talking, he says, I tell you the truth, these things, this generation won't pass away before these things have come to pass. So there's a piece of that. I'm not saying everything in here fits that description. I'm saying some of the things fit that description. And so as we get going, I want you to picture what we're doing as John, as it's, he's just, again, reporting what he sees, what he hears. But as he's doing it, God is kind of at the switcher box, giving him different looks at the same thing from different angles. Okay? All right. The seven seals, if you go back to Revelation 4 and 5, this is kind of God's plan, his divine plan. And the question becomes, okay, when will it happen? And the question uh, for the, and John's weeping because he thinks nobody's worthy to open it and he desires to see it because people are suffering. John himself should be playing golf and hugging his grandkids, and he's not. He's trapped on an island by himself. He's exiled there by the emperor, presumably for his faith. And he leads us to believe in his letters that others are doing the same thing. So the question becomes, okay, if God is in control and God's winning, if we're going to win, then why aren't we winning? What are all these Romans doing here? And that is kind of... Uh, one of those things that if you're living in as a Christian today, you probably wonder the same thing. You look around the world around you and you go, okay, if we're supposed to be winning, if God's ultimately going to win, why in the world is, are things the way that they are? 
why is there so much suffering in the world? Why do the natural disasters continue to happen? Why, 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 why? Okay, I want to, I'm going to say some things today that will probably make you go, huh? But I want you to, to chew on them, all right? And then come back next week. Let's do part two. Then let me know what you think. Annie Dillard, the writer, she says, the chief theological question of all time is, what in the Sam Hill is going on around here? Um, that is, why is this happening? If we're winning, why are we losing? That is what the people that John is kind of writing this letter to, those seven churches and beyond, what they're wondering. And so he spends the first five chapters of Revelation that we've walked through painting very clearly the ultimate victory of Christ and his church. He wants them to be certain that that's where this is going. He wants them to know that Jesus has won, will win, and that, yes, there's, there's, a, uh, you know, there's a time where maybe it seems like the winning team has fallen behind in the scoreboard, so to speak, but the, the end is written already. There is no changing the way this is going to end. And the reason is, and this is what you get today, because God is in control of all of it. All. And yes, that means the bad stuff, or what we perceive to be the bad stuff, the suffering pieces. Um, when God's plan is put into motion, we assume that all of God's plan is always just uh, maybe to just help us feel, feel good about things, help us get out of the messes that we've created, help us do this and that and the other. But that, that's not really the story that Revelation tells. The story that Revelation tells is that there's a mess that goes on from the time that Jesus leaves the earth and the church is born. There becomes a battle between good and evil. And the church is the front line of the battle of God for good. In the other side, you've got Satan who he pictures. Uh, we'll talk about Satan next week when we get to our little A&E biography on him. But, but that he is wounded mortally and knows his time is short. And so he is flailing around, firing off, doing as much damage as he can, uh, trying to hurt and injure people. And so while we would like God to say, well, why, didn't, why don't you just take everybody out of the earth and pull them out, the reason that Revelation seems to point to is because he needs soldiers in the front lines to help win people to the good side. So if you pull everybody out, then you just have hell on earth. You, you don't have anybody that's that's there and doing right and showing mercy to people who need it, showing grace preaching the gospel, sharing their faith, doing things that require real bravery, real stamina, stuff that only the Holy Spirit could really do. And so we are here to endure those things. And I'll go ahead and give a cheat sheet here. The mark of the beast is when you take that, when you go ahead and you say, okay, I cave, I will do whatever the empire wants me to do because I've had enough. You've pressured me enough. It's just too tiring to be a Christian. That's when you've sold the farm. That's when you've really um, surrendered. So we're going to study just today, 6 and 7. Uh, as you begin, the scroll is in the hand of the one seated on the throne. It creates, uh, it's God's redemptive plan. It's sealed with seven seals. Only Christ can open it. And chapter 6 and 7 record what happens when the scroll is open and what happens when God's redemptive plan is executed. 
So these seven, remember the number seven, tends to refer to wholeness, completion, or all. So this is the whole shebang. It's representative of the whole shebang, God's plan. John's going to describe two more visions of the same period elsewhere, each with detail, focusing on different aspects of the future. So picture again the football game with the camera switcher box going on. Same game, different angles, okay? Now with that, let's read Revelation 6, 1 to 8. Terrifying on the surface, all right? Here we go. There's more. As I watched, the lamb broke the first of the seven seals on the scroll. And I heard one of the four living beings say with a voice like thunder, Come. I looked up and I saw a white horse standing there. Its rider carried a bow and a crown was placed on its head. He rode out to win many battles and gain the victory. When the lamb broke the second seal, I heard the second living being say, come, and then a horse appeared, a red one. Its rider was given a mighty sword and the authority to take peace from the earth, and there was war and slaughter everywhere. When the lamb broke the third seal, I heard the third living being say, come. I looked up and saw a black horse, and its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard a voice among the four living beings saying, a loaf of wheat bread or three loaves of barley will cost a day's pay. Kind of sounds like now, doesn't it? And I don't waste the olive oil and the wine. When the lamb broke the fourth seal, I heard the fourth living being say, come. And I looked up and I saw a horse whose color was pale green. Its rider was named Death, and his companion was the grave. These two were given authority over one-fourth of the earth to kill with the sword and famine and disease and wild animals. It's a great bedtime text with your kids. Um, all right. The good news for us as we start going through this is uh, there's some description of what these, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, as we know them, what they represent. Here's a painting, the way the people, artists have uh, seen them. Very literal. You got the scales, the sword, the horses are all generally the right color. The first symbolizes political struggle and conquest. There's a description a pretty strong impressionist paintings of what these represent given to you right in the text. The second symbolizes conflict and war. He was given the authority to pull peace from the earth. The third symbolizes limited famine and economic hardship. Scales, if you broaden out and you, and you look at uh, particularly the Old Testament, but uh, elsewhere in the Bible, uh, the scales are commonly a symbol of famine or food rationing. Uh, Leviticus 26.26 comes to mind. It says, when I break your supply of bread, ten women shall... Bake your bread in a single oven and shall dole out your bread again by weight, and you shall eat and not be satisfied. There's this idea that when, you're, when you have to measure things out like that, things are scarce, right? Uh, even at the Spivey house, when we get there and on the, the, in the pot we see the pasta or whatever, the question is, did we make enough pasta because we're all hungry and greedy? And so, okay, whoever goes first, don't take too much because we may not make it all the way to the fourth person. Right? Yeah, you're laughing because you've been to my house. So it's one of those things you sit there and you go, okay, uh, things are scarce, okay, economically. Don't damage the oil and the wine, presumably because they're scarce. Food's available, but it's selling for 8 to 16 times its normal price. So we think gas prices are bad now, all right? I want you to picture a gallon of 87 octane at 64 bucks a gallon. Y'all might be coming to church on horseback. 
if it happened, $64 a gallon or something like that, a gallon of milk for $40 a gallon or more. Scarcity, economic hardship. And then the fourth horseman is on a pale, literally green, so that's why the New Living says pale green, the color of decaying flesh, death, bringing death with him in all of its various forms, sword, famine, plague, wild beasts. Now here's to me where the, you have to be an honest interpreter. And you have to go, well, who brought all this out? Whose plan is this? It's God's. Explicitly. Well, who put it into motion? Jesus. Uh, when I'm teaching biblical interpretation to my students, I say, here's a simple little guide that will help you, keep you out of the ditches. Step one, what does it say? Literally, like, what does it say? What does the text say? So we just read it, right? It says, okay, we know we're in apocalyptic lit. We've got four horsemen. We've got uh, this is what they symbolize, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, that's what it says. This is, and then the question becomes, how would they have heard it? How would they have understood it? That's step one. Once you know the author's intended meaning, then you go to question number two. God's the hero of the story all the time. So the question is, what does that teach us about God? Then you go to, what does it mean for us today? And, that, and you go in that order. You don't need to ask, what does it teach us about God, if you don't know what it says. So you start there, then you go to, what does it teach us about God, then you go to, what does it mean for me. But you don't go, what does it mean for me, until you figure out what it means. So when you get there and you get this part, then you go to, what does it teach us about God? Well, here it says God is sovereign over all of nature in history. He's the one determining when, what, who, and nobody moves without his order. He controls nature. He's able to say, yeah, you know what? Uh, no more peace. Death. It's all in his control. Now, at the moment, that's scary and terrifying until you do some reflecting on the nature of God and who he is and his goodness. But the point of this is to show, in my view, the complete and utter transcendent control, command, and glory of God over everything. Over all things. Sovereign over history. He controls nature. I mean, it's not the first time that he does something like this. Genesis 1, let there be light. Boom. Man, woman, eh, water, get over there, sky get there, sun there, moon there, and it all obeys him. And when the psalmist is writing about nature, he says, the heavens declare what? The glory of God, right? So uh, you think about Genesis 6, the great flood, where he almost ends it forever. In Exodus, the plagues, Nile turned to blood, gnats, frogs. I mean, just on and on and on, right? And you would think if he planned to exempt anybody from this kind of stuff, he would exempt Jesus when he was born, right? Wouldn't you think that if the plan of God 
Like his big goal in life was to exempt us all from suffering. That when Jesus came to earth, he would be exempt. But do you remember it? Even the night he's born, Herod tries to kill all the boys and he has to flee. And remember where his life ends. Not in his sleep, gently. He's nailed to a cross. Now, he doesn't stay there. He's not still dead. God raises him from the grave, seated by his right hand. Full glory of God now on display here in this throne room of Revelation. And he's the one that's now opening the seals, as he always has been. But what I'm suggesting to you is that God may still, now don't go too far with this, that's why you have to hear part two next week, so don't flip out on me. At least to an extent, God still executes judgments on the earth through things that we perceive to be very natural consequences. Or do we think that that was just for Pharaoh? Or that's just for whoever? Jesus? Natural disasters, etc., at the very least, Revelation would say, can be stopped by him. So the question then is, why doesn't he? Well, you have to come back next week for that one. Well, you'll hear me say, I don't know. Okay? God is not distant, and he's awesome. He's God, and we have to read the whole Bible and interpret and, and represent him properly. Um, we went through a phase here at the grocery counters of America where everybody wanted to call you by your name when you walked through the checkout line. And I'm cursed with one of those last names that nobody ever knows how to say right. Spivey. Spivey. Okay? Spivey is how you say it. I've got spivy, spiny, spiky, spewy, whatever. As I'm going through the line, they're trying to tell me, hey, I, I, I'm going to call you like we're friends. But in the saying of my name, they show me that they have no idea who I am, okay? One of the reasons Christians have got to stay in their Bibles, okay, is so we represent God properly. We know him well enough. This is what Rudy was saying last week. We know him well enough to not only uh, represent him well, but we understand him well enough to love him in the way he wants to be loved, as Rudy was talking about last week. So we don't need to sit there and go, um, I mean, if you think about your options on just the natural disaster question, okay, and again, my big, my big answer is I don't know. But there are a few things I do know. I know that God's in control of everything. So accountability for that would go back to there at some point. Sometimes God lets us do what we want and we screw everything up, which is most common. Uh, but other times, uh, there are things that we just don't get, uh, we don't get the insight into knowing why they happen. But what Revelation does is it gives us at least from the blimp up in the sky, a look at what all is going on both in the heavens and here on the earth. And it gives you a little bit of a sense of at least what game is being played, who the players are, and how it ends. And in the middle why did this specific thing over here happen or whatever? We're not necessarily going to know. But we have to be careful, sisters and brothers, when we speak for God. Um, 
If God is in fact over all and he sees all, he's through all and in all, as the Bible claims, to, to say, well, no, God didn't have any hand in it. Well, then what are you saying? You're saying he's either out of control or uh, he's taken his hands off intentionally. I mean, he could control it, but he chooses not to. Okay, well, then why are we bothering with prayer and stuff like that? If he doesn't touch the world and he doesn't engage the world, then why would we do that? I would suggest that the reason, uh, I'm, well, I'll say this. I think biblically it's a lot safer ground to say, no, he's at least overall and able to say no and have that obeyed by Satan. You see it in the book of Job. When Satan goes to him and says, have you considered my servant Job? Or God says that and then Satan goes, yeah, well, the only reason he serves you is because you put a hedge around him. But if you let me touch him, he'll curse you like everybody else does when I touch them. And so God, layer by layer, starts to remove protection from Job, and Job suffers mightily and answers the bell. But Satan can't touch Job if God doesn't allow him to do it. So now, what we end up with, and I'm telling you because I see them, I my classrooms are full of them, with college students, for instance, that, that think, okay, well, if that's who God is, then I don't, I don't like him, basically, and so I don't, I'm not going to serve God if he doesn't protect me the way I feel like I should be protected. And what Revelation is saying is, no, you don't deserve anything. You deserve the wrath of God. And by his grace, you will be spared what you deserve. What you're getting now is the result of the journey through the life that we're in. And from the blimp in the sky, we look down and we say, okay, you got good and you got evil. And you've got this kind of this temporary struggle before the second return of Christ between the church and the empire, between the Christians and, and those who are kind of conscripted into service by the evil one. I want to be clear on something. God, I'm not saying that God is part, uh, uh, is behind or the executor of every part of suffering. I don't believe that. However, I do believe that he is over everything that happens. Suffering is a part of following Jesus. When they go through this, whatever this is, whether you believe it's now or later, in this particular set of chapters, the church is not removed. The church is there going through it. The sealed ones, the 144,000, we'll get there in just a second, they, they are not removed from the earth. They continue to live through the events described. Why doesn't God pull them out? And we tend to believe that our suffering is not something that God would allow if, in fact, he loves us. But sisters and brothers, I mean, our very faith is founded on following the suffering one who told us we were not greater than he and that we would suffer as well. So why the surprise? He said, if you follow me, this is what it's going to look like. And you can decide if you want to sign up for that or not. But you can suffer for a purpose, which is to partner with God in the redemption of everything that, uh, that's here in this world, or you can suffer and die in the end. You can sign on with Satan and suffer that way. But there is no utopia available. It's not there. It awaits someday, but this ain't it. And you can see us flailing around trying to fix the world without God in all sorts of ways, and every time we do, we're like a toddler playing under the hood of his dad's car. 
we jack it up worse and worse and worse every time we do it because it's not our world to engineer. It's already been created and it's already been laid out. Here's the blueprint. Don't murder. Don't lie. Don't commit adultery. Don't this. Don't that. Do this. Do this. Do this. Hear my words and obey them. And so then we don't hear his words or don't obey them and then say, God, how could you let this happen? Right? Whereas God's sitting there and saying, no. You know, um, the world that you're in, Christian, is a tough neighborhood. Now, God has given us the tools to navigate it and to turn that neighborhood around. That's what he's called us to do. It is through suffering that redemption has always happened. To call us is to be, or to call us to be available sacrifices to God, even if it's by martyrdom, is where he goes next. I mean, I do think, I think it raises the question of what you call Christian toughness. Um, if we're unwilling to endure something as awful as a long sermon, how are we going to do with persecution, like real persecution? And that's why the refrain in Revelation, here is a call for the endurance of the saints. He's saying, endure, endure, endure. Christians are those who choose to live dangerously in a dangerous world. On the streets of Philadelphia, some homeless teenagers uh, beat an Eastern college graduate student to death as he returned from the mailbox. The parents of the victims sat silently through the entire trial, asking only for an opportunity to speak at the end. And so after the guilty verdict came down, they got up, they would go before the judge, they kneeled down and begged him to allow them to adopt the homeless teenagers that had killed their son. They said they wanted to show these boys something of the grace of God, despite the grievous evil that they had done. And the judge, who the newspaper reporters note in the article had a reputation for being hard and unemotional, had tears in his eyes, but then had to say to them, that is not the way our system of justice works. But that's the kind of system of justice that God wanted to see. And he's right, it's not our system of justice. Christ's strength is made perfect in weakness. It's revealed more clearly through the humility of Jesus, the basin and the towel, than through the Stalins. It's those who bear his mark and endure that are among the sealed mentioned at the beginning of chapter 7. There's this multitude spoken of, 144,000 of them, numerically signifying all people who are on earth that are marked by God to endure to the end. These are the people that end up enduring to the end. Who is part of of the 144,000, anyone who follows Christ until the end, anyone willing to live their life out for the sake of the gospel and keeps, proverbially speaking, the mark of God on their forehead, those who continue to follow Jesus all the way to the end. Ann Lotz, in her book on Revelation, she wonders, you know, what would it be like to be able to ask one question of the people of the Bible? And she goes, here's the question I'd like to ask. Was it worth it? 
She says, what would it be like to be able to ask Abraham, was it worth leaving your home, everything familiar, everything you loved, spend your life wandering around as a stranger, uh, all for a single child or a, a, an unfulfilled promise, was it worth it? Or to ask Moses, was it worth it leaving the treasures and pleasures of Egypt, a position of power and prestige? Was it worth carrying a whining people on your back through the desert for 40 years, only to end up dying before you even made it to the promised land? Was it worth it? Or Jeremiah, was it worth devoting your one and only life to a preaching ministry that never seemed to make a dent, never won a convert, and never changed a life? Was it worth it? What it would be like, she wonders, to ask Mary, was it worth conceiving a son out of wedlock and pour your heart out in love only to have him grow up and say that the real members of his family are those that do his will? And in the end, to stand helplessly by and watch the baby that you gave birth to die on a cross? And what would it be like to ask the Apostle John, Hey, how's it spending your old age when you ought to be surrounded by your children and your grandchildren, rotting in a Roman prison, chained to a hostile guard, stuck on an island? Was it worth it? Is it worth it to obey God? Is it worth the sacrifice of time, effort, energy to come here, deal with God's people when you'd love to just go home and relax and sit in your sweatpants in front of the fireplace and watch football? Is it worth it to invest yourself in a dream for a ministry? Is it worth it to pay the price of leading a small group, shepherding a, a, a little flock? You ever ask that question? If not, I might question. If you're really, really living as dangerously as you should. Jesus promised us that in this world we would have trouble. Yet another thing to be found true, right? There's a promise. It's a promise as sure as the happier ones. But the vision of what's awaits, what awaits us is also a promise of Christ. Here it is, Revelation 7, 9 to 17. He says, after this I saw a vast crowd, too great to count, from every nation and tribe and people and language standing in front of the throne and before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes and held palm branches in their hands, and they were shouting with a great roar, salvation comes from our God who sits on the throne and from the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living beings, and they fell before the throne with their faces to the ground, and they worshiped God. They sang, amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and strength belong to our God forever and ever, amen. Then one of the 24 elders asked me, who are these that are clothed in white? Where did they come from? And I said to him, sir, you're the one who knows. Then he said to me, these are the ones who died in the great tribulation. They have washed their robes in the blood of the lamb and made them white. And that is why they stand in front of God's throne and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will give them shelter. He will they will never again be hungry or thirsty. They will never be scorched by the heat of the sun, for the lamb on the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of life-giving water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Those who die for faith, for it or in it, that's what awaits them. How do you get there? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say for those of you who are already in Christ, ask yourself today, am I living my faith in such a way that I've ever asked the question, is it worth it? 
Have you hung 10 over the canyon of spiritual danger before? Fought valiantly enough in the battle to put yourself in any real danger? Or do you watch the coverage of the battle on television say, boy, that's a shame. Somebody should do something about that. And if you're not in Christ, then that's where it starts. It starts with taking the seal of God upon yourself. That's what we're doing March 26th. Might be cold. It'll be warm in here, I promise you. And so if you haven't yet put on Jesus in baptism, what's holding you back? And I want to invite you in to, yeah, but you get to pick your trouble. I want the, the trouble that comes with living a life into the full jet stream of the power of the Holy Spirit. It's dangerous. Um, but that's, that's, that's the path that we're offered. Right, I have to draw a mark here. We'll come back next week for part two. Part two of the two-parter within the part of ten. All right. Um, may God bless the hearing of his word. We're going to gather around the Lord's table at this time. Um, let's go ahead and share communion together. We do this every week here at New Vintage. Uh, and today, I want to offer this prayer. We take the bread and the cup representing the body and blood of Jesus. And may we pray this in our hearts as we take. Salvation comes from our God who sits on the throne and from the Lamb. Salvation comes from our God who sits on the throne and from the Lamb. Father, now, as it is said in heaven, we say it here. We say, Father, that you're, you're awesome. That we believe that you are in control. And so, Father... To the extent that some of these cups pass from us, Father, may it be, may it be so, but if, if not, then not our will but yours be done. And we say today, we are ready to endure. And we do that in the taking of the bread and the cup. We remember Jesus who set the example for us, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. We pray this in his name.